I'm happy to see all of you. I'm so glad you're here on kind of a weird Sunday. Uh, Labor Day Sunday is a very strange time in the church calendar. It's, a, it's kind of a weird morning. We don't know if everybody's going to be gone because it's the last chance for a summer something, or if everybody's staying close to home because of new work and school rhythms. And so next Sunday, I'm going to be starting a new teaching series that I think is going to be very powerful and helpful for us. And it's going to carry us all the way to the holidays, I think. But today I've got kind of a just a a standalone message today, but uh, I'm really glad to be back. Jessica and I were gone last weekend and we missed you. Uh, We had a big week this week. We moved Madeline into her dorm on campus. She's a sophomore in college, but with all the COVID weirdness last year, she had to move home, and so she is so ready to be in school. But this morning, uh, she sent us a picture. There's three girls in her dorm, and she said, uh, my view when I woke up. And it was a close-up shot of her roommate's unmanicured bare feet, like six inches from her face. And so it was a great picture. So that's her college experience. That's how it's kicking off. But, um, but today, I want to talk to you um, on the subject, your end-of-the-world checklist. Your end-of-the-world checklist. You know, um, a lot of people today are teaching on the book of Revelation, There's a lot of people out there. You may have heard from some of them. You may be talking to people, but a lot of people are looking at the things that we're living through, Uh, constant natural disasters, international crises, a global pandemic, not just a pandemic, but a pandemic that's unified the country around this particular um, topic, or divided the country, I suppose, but but unified and divided the country around this topic. Um, we have turmoil in the Middle East. We have chaos in the nations. And so a lot of people are looking at those things and they're saying, so th- this must mean that the end is near, right? Um, I thought I got a, a meme this week I want you to look at. It just this week, I was preparing this talk and somebody sent this to me. I don't know if you can read the text, but me looking outside to see which chapter of Revelation we're living today. <laughs> but uh, I love those, the end is near cartoons. Don't you love those? Of somebody on the street corner holding a sign. Um, I, I think my favorite is, I saw a cartoon, there were two guys on the street corner holding signs. And one of them had a sign that said, the end is Thursday. <laughs> but the other guy had a sign and he was scoffing and he goes, amateur. And his sign said, the end is near, because everybody knows that you can't predict the actual date of the end of the world. And so I don't know if people who are teaching on this today, I don't know if they're predicting dates specifically about the end of the world, but there is a lot of thought about it. There is a lot of curiosity and even concern. I mean, do you ever think about the end of the world? I mean, when you're not watching The Walking Dead. (laughs) I think that we all think about heaven from time to time. I think we think about the afterlife, you know, especially if we've lost a loved one and we're hoping that all of our thoughts and ideas about heaven are accurate. But I don't know how often we think about the end of the world until crazy things start happening around us. And then some people are curious and, and thoughtful and some people are afraid, And I probably should just mention that people have been saying the end is near since before any of us in this room were born. And I guess if if we keep saying it long enough, somebody will eventually be right. (laughs) 
But, but, but I also think it's fair to say that people are not crazy for anticipating the end of the world. That the scriptures present there being an end to the time-space-world continuum as we know it. Jesus talked about it. And then we all know that science validates it. From a scientific perspective, the beginning and the end of the world look something like this. Science tells us that the world began through the Big Bang, right? That was this massive explosion that created most of our physical matter as well as the physical laws that govern our physical matter. Um, in scientific language, they might say it this way. At some point in the ancient past, there was a singularity that erupted and gave rise to our ever-expanding universe. In biblical language, we would say it a little bit differently. In biblical language, we would quote God from Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. And when those words came out of God's mouth, light came to be, I'm hearing my echo from the, the group outside. Hey, that's good preaching. <laughs> But light ripped into existence at 186,000 miles per second. So according to science, we started with a big bang and we're going to end with either the big crunch or the big freeze. The big crunch says that as our universe expands, it will eventually reach a point of maximum expansion and it will begin to kind of fold in and collapse on itself until it forms almost a, a big bang in reverse. With the big freeze, though, the universe never stops expanding. The expansion just slows down. And the expansion slows down until the expansion can't keep up with all of the stars that are dying or the black holes that are forming. And so eventually it all just gets absorbed into nothing. Now, I don't think that the end is near in the sense of how a lot of people are using that term today. And I'll give you a little peek here in a minute into my view and understanding of some of those timelines. But, but whether I'm exactly right or whether I'm tragically wrong, um, whether we're here for the cosmic end of the world or just the end of our world, the fact that Scripture suggests it, Jesus affirms it, and science validates it tells me that it might not be a bad idea to spend a few minutes talking through your end-of-the-world checklist. So whether the end is near or near in a relative sense, we will all face the end of our existence. And so it'd be worth seeing what Jesus said should be on our checklist. So if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching on the end of the world. It's his Passion Week, so this is just a couple of days before his betrayal and his crucifixion. And he's actually talking to his followers about what matters most in those final days. And so in Matthew 25, Jesus tells three separate stories. And each of the stories show us some items that should be on your end of the world checklist. Um, the first story starts out this way. Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time the time of the end. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Now these, these virgins, these young women, were friends 
of a particular bridegroom. And they were waiting <clears throat> to go into the, the, the setting to participate in the, the wedding ceremony, but the bridal party was delayed, which, by the way, is often the case. I have officiated dozens and dozens of weddings. They never start on time. There's always somebody running late. If it's the bride, it's okay. If it's the bride's sister who's always late, she needs to step it up because there's always somebody who's running late with a bridal party. But this particular bridal party was so delayed that it got late into the evening and there was no light. And they were left outside in the darkness, but that was okay for the wise women because they just opened their bag and pulled out some oil, lit their lamps, and they were good. But with the foolish women, they had to go do some midnight shopping and try and knock on doors and find oil for their lamps. And by the time they got back, the bridal party had arrived, they had gone into the event, and those foolish women were left outside. And so I think that's a good starting point for our checklist. I think the first thing that needs to be on your end-of-the-world checklist is wisdom. I don't have an answer for COVID, but I can approach this time with COVID wisely. I don't know how to fix the world, but I can be wise as I serve my little corner of the world. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, um, there's a chapter that's actually uh, talking about the end times, in fact, um, in my Bible, the heading over Daniel 12 says, the end times. And then in verse 3, it says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase wisdom. And I think that... Some of the wisdom that we need on our end-of-the-world checklist is just good old-fashioned preparation. Just good old-fashioned, uh, be wise about the future. Can I do a quick show-and-tell with you? Did any of you do show-and-tell in school? And are you still traumatized by it? It's the worst to ask a six-year-old to bear their soul in front of their classmates and show and tell something that nobody thinks is interesting. Um, when I was like seven, I think, I forgot that it was show and tell day. All the other kids brought something really cool to show except for me, and so my heart started pounding, and the teacher goes, Chris, did you bring something to share with the class? And I went, yep, my boots. <laughs> I was wearing a little pair of cowboy boots, so I stuck my feet out and it wasn't until a whole room full of seven-year-olds were staring at my feet that I saw I had a big hole in one of the pointed toes, and they started laughing. <laughs> I'm still in therapy, but um, um, let, me, let me risk the show and tell for a second. Here, here are a couple of items that I have prepared in my life. I am not at all prone toward, you know, uh, stockpiling conspiracy stuff. That's not my bent or personality, but there are several areas of preparation that I've taken um, I put a little emergency kit in each of our cars. So Jessica, Amber, Maddie, and I, we all have this little packet. And inside this little packet, in addition to blankets and jumper cables, there are flares, there's little packets of water, there's some really hyper-condensed, probably nasty-tasting food in case they're stuck there for a while. There's a little, little packet of money, or at least there used to be, but... Um, <laughs> pocket knives, but it's just, in case something happens, there's reflectors, there's just some things, a little bit of first aid stuff in here. This is just minor, but not a bad thing to have, and you can 
put this together on your own or buy it for $25 off of Amazon. But, but this is a little bit more of a beast. This is my earthquake survival kit. And this, which by the way, people going through the hurricane right now are hoping that they have a few supplies on hand. So in addition to the the food and water that we have at home. Inside this kit, I've got little packets of water, I've got a wind-up radio, I have candles, I have matches, I have more food, I have blankets, I have cards, because I'm sure I'm going to want to play poker during the zombie apocalypse, and just, just enough emergency stuff. But w- whether you're into that kind of preparation or not, um, there is an area of preparation that I think all of us should have. And this right here is very precious and special to me. This is my, my end-of-life file. So in this folder, I have my last will and testament. I have all of my financial information, my account numbers, um, insurance policies and paperwork. I have even some funeral instructions because those decisions are very overwhelming when you lose a loved one. By the way, Isaiah, um, you're preaching my funeral. <laughs> That's even in here. Um, and, and I started doing something several years ago. I started writing a letter to the girls every year. So I update this every December, and every December I write a letter. And the letter just highlights something that happened this year, and this is our stage of life, and this is what we're going through, and this is what I see in you. So it's simple, just one page for each of the girls. But if I die before them, it will be one final I love you to them. And I think we should all develop something like this um, in preparation for the end of our times. And by the way, if you lost a loved one and they did not have something like this, it does not mean that they didn't love you with every bit of their being. It just means they weren't as prepared as they should have been. And unfortunately, it made it more difficult for you. But, but we should all have some kind of, some kind of, of checklist but, but wisdom is number one. If, if there is an end, and we know there's at least an end for us, but if there's an expiration date on this whole thing, then wisdom has to be on the checklist. That's number one. Number two is goodness. Um, in the next two stories that Jesus tells, he emphasizes the fact that it matters what kind of people we are. In the second story in Matthew 25, he talks about three servants that are entrusted with varying levels of treasure by their their boss, their master. And they're told, take this treasure, invest it, work with it, multiply it, and, and have something to show for it. Two of them did, one of them did not. And when the master returned to give a, a, a hearing and to find out what they did, he said to the two that had done um, their part, he said this in verse 21 and 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Goodness needs to be on our checklist. Are you a good person? Are you a good human? Sometimes. Are you a good Christian? You know, sometimes in church, In Christianity, we try so hard to let everybody know that this is not a rule-based, works-oriented religion. Have you been hearing that your whole time in church? 
You don't work your way to God. You don't prove that you're good enough for God. It's a free gift from Jesus that brings us life. We hear that so much that sometimes we overlook the fact that we are supposed to be good people. We're supposed to be good. The hope of the world is better people. If every single person got a little bit gooder, if every person was a little bit better, our world would improve. If men were better men, trafficking and abuse and oppression would, would, would be eliminated. If, if we were better people, the world would improve. We need to be good. And, and listen, um, especially if you wear the name of Christian, if you are wearing the name of Jesus, you have to be one of the best people around. Our world is not suffering from a lack of intelligence. We are smarter than we have ever been. That's not the greatest need of our world today. Our world is suffering from a lack of goodness. So as we approach the end, as we age, we need to be wise and we need to be good. Jesus thought it was important. And um, what does goodness look like if we want a little explanation? Well, the same verse tells us. So this would be number three. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. So if you want to be good, you have to be faithful. Faithfulness is number three. How faithful are you? How reliable are you? Can we count on you? When my brother was in high school, he starred in Lil Abner. You ever see Lil Abner? It was the big year-end massive school production. And there's a song in that play that is so dumb, and, but I've always remembered it. The song is this mocking, humorous um, uh, tribute to a terrible figure in the town's history. The song is called Jubilation Tea Corn Pone. And I don't know why, but I've always remembered this line. There's one line where it says, Stonewall Jackson got his name by standing in the fray. But who was known to all his men as good old paper mache? <laughs> and it was jubilation tea corn pone. Well, listen, which are you? Are you made of rock or are you made of paper mache? Do you stand or do you fold? Do you show up or sometimes? Um, are we faithful? Well done, good and faithful servant. So service has to be on the list. We'll make that our next checklist item. And then there's one more. I love this one. Happiness. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. You know, happiness should be on your checklist. And you know, even if we're talking about the end of the world, we can still be happy. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, after teaching on all of this stuff, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus said to his followers, he said, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And then he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but, but be of good cheer. Take heart. One translation says, cheer up. I have overcome the world. Jesus is always the happy warrior. Jesus is always the one who, who never loses sight of God's ultimate plan, God's ultimate victory. And listen, he wants that ethos of the happy warrior to soak into your soul. He wants it to work its way into you. So happiness needs to be on our list. I love the verse in Proverbs 31. I think it's verse 25. It's talking about this amazing, virtuous woman. And there's a translation that says that she, she laughs at the days to come. 
Other translations say she smiles at the future. I like that. She can give a big old wink at tomorrow. One, one version says that she laughs without fear at the days to come. Um, happiness is on our list. And here, here's one of the ways that we become happier. Uh, the, the scripture connects something very specific to a person's happiness. If you want to be happy, it's not about just living for ourselves. If we want to be happy, the next point here, number five, six, seven, I've kind of forgotten where I am. But the next point is an invested life. The next thing on our checklist is a life that cares about other people. I want to actually read this story. I've just mentioned the first two. Let's read this entire story. Um, This is Matthew 25 and verse 31. This is the last of the three that he shared when he talked about the end of the world. And he said, When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And this is is fascinating criteria for being a sheep rather than a goat. Because this has nothing to do with the super spiritual level of holiness. It has nothing to do with the super sophisticated belief system. It sounds like if we want to be in the sheep category, it has everything to do with how we treat people. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Isn't it crazy? You can be a sheep without even knowing it. Have you ever passed a test and not even realized it? I just graduated, and I didn't even realize it. Um, They said, the king will reply, I'll tell you, when you did this for one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Now, this story about the sheep and the goats is not a legalistic checklist. Uh, Well, if you feed this many homeless people and you visit this many people in the hospital, you'll get the golden ticket for heaven. This story is not about how to get to heaven. This story is about fitness for the kingdom. Jesus began this story by saying, when when I return as king 
And when Jesus ascends his glorious throne and the nations are assembled in front of them and when he inaugurates his eternal kingdom, he is going to need a certain type of citizen. A communist leader needs a certain type of citizen for communism to survive. A dictator needs a certain kind of citizen in order to stay in power forever. A president of a democratic republic needs a certain kind of citizen if democracy is going to continue. And Jesus needs a certain type of person to embody his kingdom, to live under his government. See, um, it's not how many times did you serve at Helping Hands Caring Hearts. No, it's about how much did you care for people. See, you might never feed a homeless person, but maybe you stay after school to talk to that student who doesn't have a safe adult to talk to. You, you might not be doing cold calls in the hospital visiting sick people, but when your neighbor goes down, you show up with groceries and you show up to help. You might not be kicking in doors to rescue girls out of brothels from human trafficking, but maybe you give money and you pay so that somebody else can go kick the door down and pull the, the person out of trafficking. Um, the, the king of this kingdom loves to the point of giving his life away. So we have to wrestle with the question, could I thrive under that kind of government? I wouldn't thrive under certain natural governments. Would I thrive in a setting where it's the norm to give your life away? It's the norm to be good, to be honest. See, not everybody's going to want to live in a kingdom where you're, you, you serve and you give, and it's in giving your life away that you find your life. It's in spending your life that you find happiness in your life. Listen, if, if, if we're only living for ourselves, then we're moving dangerously close to goat territory. And that doesn't mean we're not Christians. The story's about far more than who's in or out of heaven. It doesn't mean that. It means the kingdom hasn't soaked very far into your soul and into your personality and your life. Now, Jesus, he never gets into the talk about the details of how the world ends. He just speaks it as a given that there is an end and there is some, some stuff that happens before eternity commences. Um, the apostle Peter, on the other hand, uh, does give a little more of an opinion. So real quickly, I'm going to read from 2 Peter 3. Um, because in 2 Peter 3, um, Peter tells us that the world ends in fire. But not a fire that consumes and leaves nothing. He says it's like a fire that purifies metal so that the true value of gold is actually revealed on the other side. So the fire that Peter sees bringing the end of the world is a fire that restores the creation the way God wanted it to be. Let's listen to his words, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. By the way, with that kind of timekeeping, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. That can explain why the end is near can be a relative term. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? 
You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So this fire that Peter has in mind and this end that he has in mind is actually the beginning of a restoration that God has planned since the beginning of time. That's the scripture message. And then in verse 14, he does exactly what we're doing now. He says, since there is an end, how should we live in the meantime? What should be on our checklist? So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible where one day is compared to a thousand years and a thousand years are compared to a day. Let me show you one more verse. In Psalm 90, verse 4, the Bible says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So a thousand years can be a day or it can be a watch in the night. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a story very similar to the one about the virgins with the oil that were foolish and wise. In this story in Luke 12, he talks about the master returning. It's a parable about his return. And he talks about the master returning in the second or the third watch. So if we're using a timekeeping of a thousand years being a day, then we are here in 2021 in the third day since the time of Christ. Or if we're using the metaphor of a watch of the night, here in 2021, we're about 20% of the way through the third watch. Which, if that is a form of timekeeping to follow in Scripture, that means that Jesus could return in any generation upcoming, including ours. But we don't have a specific enough date to make us go climb on a mountain and quit our jobs and become a cult. We have work to do. We have stuff to check off of our list. We have lives to invest um, if you're old, I think you should plan on mentoring the next generation. If you're young, I think you should plan on chasing your dreams and getting married and living lives that sound like a Wren Collective song. The, the, the end is near, but near could be far as well as being near. Um, we need to be mindful of the things that Jesus said. I, I didn't make any of these up. I just read the red today. The end is not tomorrow, um, but, but it's near enough that we should live lives that are wise and good and faithful and filled with service and filled with happiness and that are invested in serving the world around us. And then whether the end is tomorrow or way after my lifetime, I will have lived a life worth living. Amen? Let me have the worship team rejoin me. D did you notice what's not on the list? Fear, worry, panic, excessive anxiety. Listen, we can do this. Jesus fully assumed that his followers could happily serve their way into significant lives even as the end draws closer. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. We have each other. Um, we can do this. 
And there's one, one more thing that I'll add before we sing, because you probably wondered why this wasn't first on our list. The last thing that needs to be on your end-of-the-year checklist is the right obsession. We could, we could put all this under that heading of the right obsession. Who or what are you obsessed with? Um, at Grace Church, Jesus Christ is our magnificent obsession. He's the beginning and the end of our faith. Jesus is the starting line, the finish line, and the pathway to the finish line. And lives that are caught up in the person and the presence and the reality and the example and the ethos and the power of Jesus are lives that overcome. They're lives that make it, that survive um, through even the end of times. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to receive communion. When you came in, you should have received the communion elements. I want you to get those ready. Why don't you stand with me? Um, Amanda's going to lead us in that wonderful song, Behold Him. And as we sing this song, Behold Him, let's intentionally orient our lives back to the person of Jesus. Let's focus on Him. Let's, let's regroup to the foot of, of the cross of Jesus today. And let's just worship and behold Him for a few minutes, and then we'll end receiving communion together. Take those communion elements and just move it to where the bread's on top and let's peel that little layer back and get the bread out. These elements, the bread and the cup that symbolize the, the life of Jesus that was poured out for us are, are so powerful. In and of themselves, they're just touch points. But the power that they represent can change the world. In fact, this morning I read a quote. This wasn't part of my sermon. But this morning when I was reading and praying, I read this statement. Listen to this. This is who you came from and this is who we are. It said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but the resources for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did abound much more. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve, and fatalism to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match, that something new had come into the world, that not only here and there, but on a wide scale, humanity could attain to what was before impossible, goodness. And not only goodness, but health of mind and body, rhythm and harmony in their entire being. And when we receive the communion elements, and when we see, uh, say that simple prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. And whether you're a follower of Jesus for many years now, or whether you're in church today and you've never given your life to Jesus, as we all pray this today, Jesus, I give you my life. We are stepping into the flow and the current and the ethos of that mindset that says, look what has come to the world. My sin has met its match. My despair has been swallowed up. My brokenness has found a healer that's adequate. And that's what we're receiving when we receive communion. So Lord Jesus, we give you our life. Whether it's the first time or whether we've said this prayer a million times, we're here, we're yours, we need you. Thank you for pouring out your life so that we could live, so that we could pour out our lives so that others could live. When Seth and Amanda were leading us earlier in that song, The Goodness of God, when they came to that line that says, your goodness is running it's running after me. I, I, I saw it in a different way today. How many of you ever had somebody chase you down? Did anybody ever believe in you when you didn't believe in yourself? 
Did anybody ever keep telling you about Jesus before you finally believed and wanted to follow Jesus? That's goodness chasing you. Sometimes it's not this mystical goodness from God. It's a person going after us. We get to be the goodness of God that chases people down. So let's chase people down. Let's love the people in our measure, our sphere of influence. When you leave today, go into your work tomorrow, although most of you are going to be off tomorrow. Go into your space as a minister, disguised as a coach or a teacher or a business person. Go into your work and into your home and into your life as a kingdom agent, embodying the kind of government that gives its life away for the world. 